I'm Anj. And I'm Anirud. Welcome to another episode of Kathakar, a podcast in which we discuss important turning points in history in their human aspects. In the beginning of the 19th century, British settlers came to New Zealand in search of land and opportunity. Under the leadership of Edward Gibbons Wakefield, the New Zealand Company would be formed in an attempt to colonize the islands and establish trade. However, conflicts would arise between the native Maori people and the new British immigrants. The ownership of Maori lands led to conflicts which were temporarily diffused by the Treaty of Waitangi, but in later years, the New Zealand Wars would cement the British oppression of the Maori people. Even today, New Zealand experiences the effects of its history, as provisions of the Treaty of Waitangi still form the backbone of sections of their current constitution. To discuss the Treaty of Waitangi and its lasting effects on the country, we're joined by Dr. Jim McAloon, a professor of history at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, whose interests include the social and economic history of New Zealand, as well as the Maori land issues. So, without further ado, let's get started. Would you like to, uh, Mr. Michael Loon, uh, would you like to give us some contextualizations as to what is happening in, with the New Zealand Company and the British settlement of New Zealand right before the treaty? Well, the New Zealand Company was, was a private concern, a, a joint stock company, um, and it was, it was established uh, in line with the, the perhaps rather um, idealistic theories of, of Edmund would given Wakefield, who was um, regarded, or perhaps regarded himself as, as, a, as a leading theorist of colonization. Um, his concern was partly to alleviate stress in the United Kingdom uh, by allowing for migration. And he wanted to ensure that colonial society developed in a way that as he saw it would be stable, uh, and perhaps hierarchical rather than, than what he described as the anarchy of the frontier. Now, there was a good deal of, of if not misrepresentation, at least um, mischaracterization, I think, of colonial frontiers. Um, in particular, he wished to devise a system that would allow for the or, or encourage the migration both of, of colonists with money, uh, because he believed that they would bring culture and civilization with them, and also uh, laboring colonists to do the work, um, who would, the, in, in both cases, relieve the, the pressure, the lack of opportunity that, that many were experiencing in the United Kingdom. So the idea was that colonists with money would um, buy land, they would be given um, entitlement to sections both in the towns that would be developed and in the rural areas, uh, that they would rapidly develop uh, a wheat growing exporting economy, that labourers would, would happily um, do work, they would have free passages, and that wages would be high enough that without um, too long a delay, within a few years, laborers could aspire to buy small plots of land themselves, thereby giving them an incentive to be decent, orderly, sober, respectable citizens, that sort of thing. Um, so far as um, Māori land was concerned, the biggest problem in Wakefield, imagine, 
was that he was relying entirely on second-hand information. He'd never been to New Zealand, um, and so he, he was he was not that familiar either with the geography of the place um, or with the realities of Māori society, Māori law, um, perspectives relating to land. And perhaps like many um, 19th century imperialists, he convinced himself that the indigenous people were, were waiting for the benevolence of colonialism to appear. Um, and on, on that point, he was rather mistaken. It's not that Māori actively resisted him in the first instance. It's that uh, their expectations and his were very different. It uh, should also be mentioned that the, the missionaries who were particularly um, numerous in the northern part of the North Island did not appreciate Wakefield's views. Wakefield had little time for missionaries either. Missionaries, I, I, I think it's fair to say, had their own reasons for wanting some sort of formal British um, role in administering New Zealand, basically to leave them a, a clear field for their um, efforts at evangelisation. So you've, you've, you've got three, perhaps four um, things going on. You've got the, the New Zealand Company's agenda, uh, you have the missionaries, you have Māori who are uh, large complex and with, with you know, many different perspectives among themselves, and there's the concern perhaps of the colonial office in London to sort of solve a problem. All right, so you mentioned that Wakefield has actually never been to New Zealand, so is there a particular reason why he chose New Zealand over other colonies? Um, I think because he regarded Australia as a textbook case of how not to do things, uh, Australia was was blighted uh, in his view by its origins as a convict settlement, at least New South Wales. Um, there was a good deal of um, information coming into, New, into Great Britain about New Zealand in the 1830s, but I suspect that the um, main reason was quite simply that it was there weren't too many other temperate areas which had not been um, subject to significant efforts at colonisation by Europeans. Um, you know, there, there were certainly um, significant parts of the North American continent, as you know, where Europeans had hardly reached, but um, they were different jurisdictions, or at least the United States was. So I think uh, Wakefield's view was that New Zealand was a, was a clean slate. It was an, an opportunity to, to do something new, which again, as I stress, rather ignored the fact that Māori might have some views on the matter. So with the Maori people, uh, what was the relationship like at the very beginning? So when Wakefield first arrived, what was the relationship between the two? Uh, well, you brought up four different peoples that were there. So what were the relationships like between those four groups? Well, they, they were dispersed uh, across the country as well. The missionaries, as I said, were particularly uh, prominent in, in the northern half of the North Island, and uh, such British, official British presence as there was, uh, uh, an officer called a British resident who had very little power. He was perhaps a quasi-ambassador in a way. He was also based in the far north. Um, Māori populations... Um, 
were across across both islands, all, all three main islands. Uh, but again, for reasons of climate and geography and resources, more numerous in the upper half of the North Island, um, becoming relatively scattered in the south. Part of the thing about the Wakefield expedition of 1839 is, is that um, the ship, which included um, Edward's brother William as uh, effectively leader of the expedition, uh, was basically sent off the relatively vague instructions. Well, all the reports we've seen suggest that the region around Cook Strait might be uh, worth worth exploring. Uh, there are harbours, apparently. Um, it, uh, offers close connection to Australia, but there was very little understanding of the uh, recent um, history uh, involving Māori communities. Uh, in fact, the lands on both sides of Cook Strait, uh, uh, Wellington, our capital, was at the lower end of the North Island, on the northern shore of Cook Strait. Both sides of Cook Strait land tenure uh, had been very much contested between different Māori tribal groups in the 20 years before 1839. Uh, so significant communities uh, come in, others had been displaced. Uh, so the whole area was, was in a state of considerable flux, you might say. Um, I think when, when the New Zealand Company ship showed up in um, first at the top of the South Island in 1839, uh, as far as we can we can discern, um, the Māori chiefs, the rangatira with whom they dealt, um, would have had expectations of small-scale European presence, um, bringing with it opportunities for trade, um, mediators with the outside world, but an outside world with which Māori were increasingly familiar. I think it would be fair to say that the expectation was that the communities would be small and that they would not challenge, uh, would not be in a position to challenge uh, traditional leadership and um, the developing but still um, distinctively Māori way of doing things. Um, so Māori would certainly have expected to benefit in terms of trade, in terms of uh, consumer goods, uh, none of which would have been absolutely dependent on these settlers for, but uh, they would have found them useful. Um, there is, um, there was ongoing bitterness about the transactions that William Wakefield got certain rangatira to sign. Wakefield's expansive view was that um, in, in, in a couple of transactions, he'd got the total right to about 20 million acres on either side of Cook Strait. Uh, this was a nonsense, and uh, some officials at the time knew it was a nonsense, um, and all the evidence we have about Māori perspectives is that the idea was that you know, the Europeans would be told where to settle and would be expected to behave themselves, not make a nuisance of themselves, um, and interact for mutual benefit with Māori communities. Uh, the other part of the um, Wakefield's agenda was to secure some form of possession of the land before the increasingly likely British annexation of New Zealand took place. Because once uh, the authority of the British Crown was proclaimed in New Zealand, uh, British colonial law specified that the Crown would have the monopoly of buying land from Māori uh, and selling it to, to settlers 
So um, there was a little bit of time pressure on the Wakefields to get in while the going was good. So was that transaction of land peaceful between Maori, the Maori people and Wakefield, or were there like different conflicts that occurred? I'm assuming because I know I know that from research that there were conflicts that will uh, mention was like the Wairu fray, but uh, was there any other like is there a different perspective on what those interactions were? Yes, well, the the the, the initial transactions were peaceful. Um, and the first company settlement was established at the very beginning of 1840 here in Wellington, or at least up the harbour at a place called Pitone, uh, now often called Pitone. Um, initially, there was um, no violence, but within a few months, there was a degree of friction because where the company settlement had been established on Pitone was um, on a floodplain. Uh, and there's a rather large river coming down out of the Tararua Mountains, um, known at the time, I think, mostly as the Hiratonga River, uh, now often called the Hutt River. Um, and when it flooded, um, the company settlers thought, oh, well, this is no good. And they moved down the harbour to what is effectively now central Wellington, um, displacing Māori from their settlements at um, Pipitea, uh, at uh, Te Aro, uh, and other places, and the Māori sort of objected, um, but um, there was a low-level, low uh, non-violent conflict over who was going to be where for some for some months. The government had been established by virtue of the Treaty of Waitangi um, in February 1840, and in 1841-42, the um, new British authorities established a commission to inquire into disputed land purchases that had taken place before the treaty and these um, inquiries include the transactions in this part of the country. What happened over the next couple of years was that this commission essentially found that the New Zealand company uh, had encouraged or um, let its settlers move into space where Māori um, still had the right, but that it would now be um, impractical or inexpedient to push the settlers off and restore Māori to, to their lands. So monetary compensation was suggested and Māori were basically pushed into accepting that. So already, although the Crown was recognising the... the um, imperfection or the shonkiness, to use a more colloquial term, of these purchases, um, even at the start, um, it became evident that the settlers were not going to be inconvenienced to any great extent. Um, on the other side of the strait, uh, Nelson was established um, at the very end of 1841 into 1842, um, initially again not occupying uh, large areas of land. Um, in both settlements, particularly in Nelson, the problem was that um, if you look at a relief map of New Zealand, you'll see it. Um, both um, parts of the, the country are pretty rugged, pretty hilly, mountainous. Um, so the company's visions of um, lovely little um, flat, easy 150-acre farms uh, were quickly proven to be impractical. 
in Nelson, um, company surveys went, went scouting and they eventually um, crossed over the hills into, into uh, the Wairo Valley, which was a much broader, um, flat, gently descending valley, something like 60 miles long. So it was significant land area. Uh, to the east of Nelson, uh, leading down to the modern town of Blenheim. And that was the route of the Wairoa Frey, which you've mentioned. Um, relying on that um, very unsatisfactory deed of 1839, the company authorities um, claimed that they had the right to survey the land and to occupy it. And this is where things became difficult because um, the principal chiefs of one of the most powerful tribal groups in on both sides of Cook Strait, uh, Taropanaha was his name, of Ngāti Tōr, um, strenuously maintained, uh, Taropanaha and his nephew, Tarangi Hayata, strenuously maintained that they had not sold the Wairo to anyone, that they claimed um, having arrived some 20 or so years earlier and displaced others. And when the surveyors attempted to get their, um, get their gear out, they were politely escorted off the land. They'd set up a little shack made of reeds, um, and Taropanaha's men burnt this down. When the, when the surveyors got back to Nelson, they reported this, and it can only be described as a rush of blood to the head, or perhaps an overwhelming determination to assert company and British power. Um, the magistrates of Nelson swore out a warrant for arrest of Turopanaha uh, on charge of arson. Well, his perspective was that the, the land was, it was a flimsy structure and uh, he wouldn't be going anywhere. And he told the, the, the posse that when they turned up in June of 1843, um, no one knew how the shooting started. Uh, things were tense and in the exchange of fire, um, a number were killed on both sides, including the uh, wife of Tarangi Hayata, uh, who was Taropanaha's nephew. Now, in terms of, of Māori law tikanga, um, Taropanaha was obliged to seek compensation. I'll put it that way rather than say take revenge, although that's the usual translation of the term. Utu. Um, he was obliged to balance things up and his nephew Tarangi Hayata um, was able to insist that the, the um, surveyors and um, police who had surrendered should be killed in, in payment for the, the loss of Māori life. And that's what happened. So as far as the settlers were concerned, it was barbarous murdering of prisoners. Um, as far as Taropanaha and his people were concerned, it was an unfortunate episode, um, which could have been avoided if the settlers had just waited for an adjudication, which was what Taropanaha had, had urged. Yeah, let the commission check it out. Um, there was a great panic in, in Nelson, as you can imagine. There was an interregnum in the governor because one had died and, and another was on his way. And when the new one, Robert Fitzroy, arrived in 1843-44, he inquired into what had happened at Wairo and basically told the, um, the, the Nelson settlers that, that while it was very unfortunate, they shouldn't have been there and he wasn't going to um, take action against Nati Tor. So you can imagine that, that he apparently became very unpopular with the settlers. Then in Wellington, uh, in the aftermath of the inquiries into these early transactions, there's a lot of um, 
dispute further up the, the Hutt Valley, up, the, up uh, Hiratonga, the valley at the north of the Wellington Harbour, over which bits of land had been uh, allocated or were retained by various Māori, by whose authority, um, and which bits would, would be taken uh, for European settlement. And those conflicts, again involving Te Rauparaha and Te Rangihayata, Ngāti uh, led to um, a brief but, but pretty unpleasant war in that part of the, the region in 1845-46. Um, by then, a third governor had arrived with more troops, and he was able to at least push um, Te Rangihayata and his people off the land, secure it for European settlement, uh, without... Um, an outright military defeat of them, but he had enough power to sort of push European settlement ahead. So that's, that's a, a very short um, description of the events in this part of the country in the early mid-1840s. So then moving on with that, uh, I guess you already talked about this, but like why was there so much opposition to like this colonization in New Zealand? So like beyond, I uh, you know like financial risk was a factor, but like especially seeing the results from like colonization of South Australia, but why was there something else that really prompted this like colonization uh, opposition beyond just like the Maori, like the Maori people? Um, the missionaries were a, a lobby that did not particularly um, want to encourage large-scale colonization. I think in simple terms, they, they wanted to be left alone in the clear field for evangelization. Um, but the other reason why colonization by Europeans proceeded very slowly in, in New Zealand was much more, I think, that um, it's, uh, the islands are quite remote. Um, it's expensive to get here. Um, and while there were migration out of the British Isles in the 1840s. Um, in most cases, they were directed elsewhere. I mean, you know, you'll be you'll be well aware that millions of Irish um, came to North America in the wake of the Great Famine. Um, simply put, New Zealand was too far away for, for poor Irish to get here. They couldn't afford the fare. So migration by Europeans was, was pretty much a trickle. Uh, for most of the 1840s. There were two more settlements established on the basis of company theories, but not directly by the company. Um, Otago, around the city of Dunedin in 1848, which was essentially a Scottish Presbyterian settlement, and Christchurch, Canterbury in 1850, which was structured around the Church of England, the, the Anglican Church or the Episcopalian Church, as you, as you would call it. That said, Governor Gray, who became governor in 1845 and, and um, engaged in warfare with, with Ngāti Tōa, also uh, explicitly pursued a policy with the encouragement of London to secure as much land as possible um, by deeds which would you know, enable him to say, right, well, we've got your signatures, you've sold your land, even though Gray's own view was to doubt or deny the legitimacy of Māori claims to extensive areas of land. 
Um, by 1852, when he finished his first term as governor, Gray had overseen the Crown purchase in very heavily inverted commas of the entire South Island um, and of parts of the East Coast, the Lower North Island as well. So on one level, it might simply um, be the case that uh, significant colonisation by Europeans proceeded after significant areas of land had been acquired for the purpose. There's all sorts of other things in the mix, but I think that that was was a necessary condition. All right, so going back to the Treaty of Waitangi, right, we mm. talked about why there was opposition, but there was also a problem with the treaty, and that was the translation between the Maori and the New Zealand, um, sorry, it's the British. So uh, I, for, I don't know what the specific word was, but I know that it was translation error between the word governance versus sovereignty. So yep. how did that lead to the New Zealand wars? And then what were the effects of the New Zealand wars? Sure. We've got 20 um, very complicated years between the, the treaty in 1840 and the major episodes in the New Zealand wars. Uh, there were the, 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 the small-scale fighting that I've already mentioned and an inconclusive war in the far north in 1845-46, a part of the wars. But um, before I um, talk about the, the um, conflict of interpretation or the disputed meanings of the treaty, um, it's probably worth saying that, that um, most or at least many Māori were not entirely opposed to European settlement, but they had ideas about how it should proceed, um, on what scale, and for whose benefit. And uh, the colonial authorities had very different ideas. Uh, obviously enough. So uh, most or a significant number of chiefs, something just over 500 in all, actually signed the treaty or te tiriti, um, because almost all of them signed the Māori language version, which indicates at least some willingness to accept a role for British authority. Um, okay, the question of language. The first governor of New Zealand, William Hobson, was sent from London in 1839 to negotiate some sort of transfer of sovereignty from Māori um, by the British government. His instructions included the point that Britain had, at least in a qualified way, recognised the independence of New Zealand, of Aotearoa, um, of Māori sovereign. Um, power authority and therefore some sort of formal agreement would be necessary. Hobson drafted an, a treaty in English uh, and perhaps the problem was that he was a naval captain not a lawyer. Uh, maybe it would have been it was better that he wasn't a lawyer. Um, he drafted the treaty in English and then had some of the missionaries in the Bay of Islands translated into Māori. Now Māori had been a written language for something like 20 some years by this point. Many Māori were, were literate in their own language. Hobson's version, the English version, um, the, there are three articles. The first article in the English version had the Māori ceding sovereignty to the British crown. And Hobson's understanding of that was probably pretty much as, as, as um, 
most English speakers would understand it, the absolute power. Um, there was a treaty of ceding state authority. The first article in the Māori version spoke of kāwanatanga, which is a, was a new word in Māori. It was a transliteration of governorship. Um, and it probably drew on the scriptures, on the gospels, because they had been first, they had been translated into Māori really early. So when you think that um, in, in the narratives of the birth of Jesus, um, we read that uh, so-and-so was the, the governor, the kawana of Judea, the Roman governor under the authority of the Roman emperor, you can see that kawana target is a somewhat subordinate quality. That makes sense? Okay, so that, that, that's clear. Um, so in effect, the English version claimed more than the Māori version gave. Right? Then to Article 2. <clears throat> um, in English, it guaranteed to the chiefs and tribes the full, exclusive and undisturbed possession of all their lands, forests, fisheries and other valued goods, so long as it is their wish to retain them. But if they do wish to sell, then the Queen has the preemptive right to buy. In Māori, um, the guarantee was of tino rangatiratanga, full chieftainship over their lands, their homes, and taonga katoa, all valued things. So rangatiratanga is the attribute of a chief. It's arguably um, much closer to sovereignty than is Kawanataka. So there's a sense in which, and it's not quite right, but it's getting toward the, the point that uh, the two versions, the first two articles, stand each other on the head. And that was um, or would become a significant problem. The article was less problematic because it, it spoke of uh, Māori having, now having the rights of British citizens uh, in both languages. And there's never been so much conflict over that. Um, I would say, though, um, even the English version of Article 2 is pretty specific. Now, what part of full, exclusive and undisturbed possession is ambiguous? It's not. Right. It's just that rangatiratanga is even stronger than the right of an individual or a corporate body to hold property at, at law, if that makes sense. What is equally and perhaps more important is um, the way in which the treaty was debated and promoted in the oral discussions, uh, not only at Waitangi itself, but up and down the country in the next six months. And everything that we know makes it clear that missionaries, government officials, whoever else was surrogate to Māori, made the point that it was about protecting Māori interests, uh, that it was about um, Māori understanding, ensuring that these new newcomers would be controlled, would behave themselves, and that their presence would be for the benefit of and not to the detriment of Māori. So this, the, the standard, the, the, the scene is set for considerable uh, misunderstanding and conflict right from the start. Um, yet, it was a few years before conflict became more intense, it was for a number of reasons. One is that um, the reality on the ground, there was about 2,000 Europeans, Pākehā, as they were becoming called in the country, and something like 100,000 Māori, um, who were um, not inclined to be unassertive. 
shall we say. So there was a power imbalance. And even if British government authorities might have um, had ideas about subordinating Māori to the full array of British law immediately, for quite a number of years that was not possible. It was just simply not practical. So they were dependent on Māori leaders to enforce law in their own communities. And there were interesting debates about whose law applied if it was a conflict between Māori and Māori, between Māori and a European, and between two Europeans. Um, and so more or less pragmatic solutions emerged for the first few years. But again, from the mid-1840s, and I think this is the real change, there's a much stronger official determination to um, subordinate Māori, to assimilate them, and to pursue a, an agenda of European colonisation, not only of land, but also in institutional terms, law, custom, and so forth. Um, and I, I think, you know, with all sorts of limitations, uh, my view is that the first two governors, uh, William Hobson and Robert Fitzroy, did attempt to give effect in some ways to the treaty as they understood it. But by 1845, with May, the view, I think, had changed to, to the effect it was a very little import, very little significance. Uh, and this was a view that suited the New Zealand company down to the ground. And it also, I, I think, um, suited increasing numbers of European settlers, many of whom, of course, were not um, learned in constitutional law and treaty interpretation, uh, were, you know, um, understandably interested in, in getting ahead. So the, the, the difference between the two versions in time would come to be a problem, but I think really the, um, the problem was compounded by an increasing and indeed overwhelming determination by the uh, colonial authorities in New Zealand to impose British law on Māori, um, whether, whether they liked it or not. And that was what was at the base of the serious outbreak of fighting the serious war in Taranaki on the west side of the North Island in 1860-61. You mentioned how there, were, there was like a power imbalance between the number of British um, citizens and the number of Maoris. So in the New Zealand wars, the British and or the New Zealand colonial government ended up um, like winning and taking land from the Maori. So how did they do that with a, such a large power imbalance? Okay, well, um, the, the imbalance, the, the, the population imbalance was the case in 1840. Um, by about 1852, when a settler parliament was established in New Zealand, and that's another part of the, the, the story of power, that um, the establishment of a settler parliament excluded Maori from the right to vote. So they were you know, not represented. Um, by that point, 1852, uh, the Māori population had fallen somewhat perhaps to 70,000. Uh, disease had something to do with it. Um, and the settler population up to about 30,000. Five years later, it was pretty much 60,000 each. So your, your, your population imbalance has gone. From 1858, Pākehā are the, the uh, numerically dominant and increasingly so, very much increasingly so. Um, 
the wars were also played out like they did because the, the colonial authorities in New Zealand, the governor and the settler parliament, managed to persuade the British government that um, British rule and the lives of settlers were um, seriously threatened by Māori, which was not in fact the case, but um, a very significant commitment of tens of thousands of troops uh, was made to um, fight these wars in the first half of the 1860s. Um, in in the way the way in which the wars developed, uh, it was about land, but it was also about authority, very definitely about authority. Um, Taranaki, the, the provoking issue was um, the desire of settlers and the government to push forward with land buying. The fact that um, a particularly desirable block of land was, or the, a part of it was offered by one relatively junior chief in the Te Atiawa people um, who presumed or pretended that he had a right to sell his individual share. Now that did not fly in Māori land law and customary law, it just didn't. Um, interests were collective, and all those um, with interests had to agree. The senior chief of, of the Tiatiago people, William Ukingi, said, no, it's not for sale. Um, you know, most of us don't want to sell it. Uh, it's our land. We need it for our survival and prosperity. Go away. Uh, the governor's response was that if I accepted this approach, I would be recognising William Ukingi as virtual sovereign in that part of Taranaki. So in fact, it's about power, at least as much as about land, okay. Um, the first Taranaki war lasted 12 months uh, from March 1860 to February 1861 and ended in a draw. Uh, this is one notable feature of the uh, New Zealand wars, the great war for New Zealand right through the 1860s, vastly outnumbered. Māori nevertheless managed to um, defend tenaciously and often to hold on. Um, Te Atiawa or Taraki Māori were um, only significantly defeated in, in the resumption of fighting in the middle part of the decade, which um, got caught up in the wider war across the whole world, across large parts of the North Island, involving government determination to crush what was known as the King Movement or Kingitanga. And that was one of the more significant elements in, in the story of, of the North Island in, in the 1860s. Uh, would you like to go into depth about the King, uh, the Maori King Movement? Yes, 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 it's, it's very, very important. Um, I said before, by 1853, almost all the South Island had been um, taken, acquired by the government. Um, and North Island tribes were becoming increasingly anxious. Um, parts of uh, North and especially around Auckland had been acquired by the state as well. Pressure on the east coast of the North Island. It's just worth, by the way, emphasizing that, that um, yeah, Māori, as you know, are, uh, uh, as a people, um, their, their, their society, their structures, um, especially then were very much tribal. So it's 
as much important to speak of particular tribes as of some you know, Māori entity as a whole. But in any case, by the um, mid 1850s, influential uh, rangatira in the north were becoming increasingly concerned about the process of, of land being taken, acquired by the Crown, and decided that um, there are a series of, 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 of meetings and discussions that some sort of unity across the tribes would be desirable. And the idea that they developed was to elect um, one of their number as a king, kingi, and to put their land under his manner, under his um, authority. So that by agreeing to you know, join Kingi Tanga, the King Movement, uh, those uh, tribes which did so would be signalling that they wished to maintain a degree of authority over their own affairs and that they wished to uh, hold on to most of their land. Um, it must be emphasised that, that Kingi Tanga never saw itself as posing a challenge to British authority. Um, as uh, leaders at the time said, it was you know the, the queen on one side, the king on the other side, and the love of God above both of them. Most of the um, leaders um, behind King Itana were Christian, um, and they very strongly in those religious terms. Um, unfortunately, however, perhaps inevitably, um, government authorities did not see it the same way. They um, perceived or chose to perceive Kingitanga as a threat to British power, to the authority of the Queen, as a challenge to sovereignty. So quite apart from the desire for land, which was certainly part of the background to the wars in, in um, Waikato and Taranaki uh, in the 1860s, there were also, again, questions of power and authority. And Gray returned for a second term as governor in 1861 after the Taranaki War had um, run on into a stalemate. And his clear agenda was to destroy Kingitanga as a political force. Um, to do this, he um, spoke the language of conciliation for a couple of years while bombarding London with all sorts of memoranda claiming that, that there was a huge Māori army about to descend on Auckland and burn it to the ground. Now, this was absolute nonsense, and Gray knew it was absolute nonsense, but it got him the troops, and then in May of 1863, he issued an ultimatum to um, the tribes living south of the Mangatafiti stream, um, south of Auckland, the, in the Kingitanga region, that uh, if they did not swear allegiance to the Queen, uh, they would be thrown off their land. And he issued this proclamation basically at the same time as he sent the army in. So uh, there was no time to um, discuss it. I should have said that um, the discussion as to who would become king was um, involved. And in the end, the choice uh, went to the, the, the role was accepted by um, an old and very influential Waikato chief, um, Porta told Fero Fero, who was the first king from 1858 to 1860. Uh, his son and successor, Tahiao, took over in 1860 and had to deal with, with, with all, all, this, um, all these events. Um, so 
Gray's army uh, of several thousands, including gunboats, invaded the Waikato, um, pushed south with uh, Kingitanga troops, sort of, I guess you'd say, managing a very um, brilliant defensive action, yielding ground only slowly, falling back, falling back, um, inflicting heavy casualties on, on the British troops, but nevertheless being pushed back. Uh, the fighting spread over the hills into the Bay of Plenty around Tauranga in 1864. That was a port which could be used to supply the Kingitanga troops with similar stories there about ground only very slowly yielded. In 1865, um, Tafiao uh, agreed to cease fighting. Um, the land, or much of it, in Waikato and Taranaki and Bay of Plenty was then proclaimed confiscated by the settler parliament. Uh, that was the um, immediate outcome of the war, and uh, as you can imagine, for the uh, Iwi and Hapu, the tribal communities involved, it was a grievance, um, a pain that endured and still does. Um, Afiao and many of his people withdrew into um, the interior south of the Waikato uh, into uh, the lands of an, an, an allied tribe, Ngāti Mania Portal, um, and sheltered there for the best part of 20 years. Settler authorities, government um, officials did not dare cross that line. It was an, yeah, a zone of party independence. So while the confiscations were devastating and the mil military um, engagements um, ended with um, a defeat of some sort for Māori. Um, they were not vanquished, if you like. Um, but the confiscations, I think, were a principal outcome of that great war in the mid-1860s. Was there any reason why they didn't go and fully conquer the Māori people? or? Yes, it would have been too difficult and too embarrassing. Um, increasingly, some humanitarians in London and Britain were asking awkward questions about what the British Army was doing um, in defiance of um, yeah, the humanitarian ideals of the time, um, throwing Indigenous people off their land. Um, it, the the, the Māori defence was sufficiently strong that... Um, a truly massive commitment in relative terms of British troops was needed to secure even what they did. And the appetite of governments to continue spending money on something that was becoming seen as discreditable uh, was diminishing. Um, I have described the um, idea or the, the process of taking land by armed confiscation as embarrassing, difficult, expensive, and dangerous. Because yeah, the, the strength of the Māori resistance should not be underestimated. The um, solution, if you like, that the settler parliament developed at the very end of the 1860s was effectively to proceed with um, a massive um, scheme of borrowing money overseas in order to swamp Māori demographically and economically to 
um, bring tens of thousands of British and Irish settlers in to populate the North Island, to clear the clear the bush, uh, to establish agriculture and economies, to push through roads and railways, and by that way to um, surround, swamp, and marginalise. Māori. Does that make sense? Because I think that that's a very important part of of the the eighteen seventies. Um, so it was uh, after. Um, 1869, I think you could say that the settler authorities decided to play a longer game, which would be less um, visibly odious. Yes, yeah, so you talked about uh, the Maori land and the conflicts with the British, but that's all, like, that doesn't really matter unless we talk about the current day effects of that um, <laughs> law in the Maori uh, land court. So the last question that we have for you, Doctor, is what were the lasting effects of the New Zealand company's interactions with New Zealand and the Maori, specifically with um, the current constitution that they have? Because I know that the land court has some influence in that. Sure, sure. Well, I think the, the New Zealand company was, was, was part of the beginnings of British colonization of New Zealand, but its importance had had um, disappeared by 1852 or thereabouts. The company itself went bankrupt. Um, European settlement of New Zealand was, was driven by New Zealand government's policies to attract migrants, by British encouragement of migration, and by um, many thousands of individuals who just decided to, to move. Um, in particular, um, Zealand's population was significantly um, increased gold rushes of the 1860s. Uh, so that, that's a, a Pacific Rim story. You've got miners moving from California to Victoria and Australia to New Zealand. So those things and the, the migration policies of the 1870s, um, I think, were, became much more important than the New Zealand company. But that's it. Um, yes, the confiscations only accounted for a very small part of the land that has been taken from Māori. In South Island, mostly it was by um, purchase deeds in the 1840s and 50s, which on the surface were legal, but the terms of which were never delivered on. So governments promised all sorts of things and did not deliver. Uh, to the extent that those deeds can be described as fraudulent. Um, in the North Island, you mentioned the, the native or the Māori land court, and that is very much part of the story. It was established in the 1860s um, by the settler parliament in order to convert Māori customary land holding into titles that English law recognised. So it's the imposition of an alien legal system on Māori in terms of land. Because as I said before, as with indigenous peoples and, and many other parts of the world, of course, um, rights to land and resources were collective and certainly did not equate to um, ownership in the way that, that capitalist Europeans understood it. So the land court was established to individualize titles, to um, you know, take a piece of land in which um, uh, other large um, tribal group had interests related to and say, right, this land is, yeah, the interests in this land is divided up. Initially, 10 of you are to be the owners on behalf of your whole community. 
Well, that flew in the face of custom for a start. Um, it then meant that it was easy enough for, for land buyers um, and government officials to pick these 10 off and, you know, in whatever way, get them to sign, sign away the rights of the whole people. Even when that 10 rule was abolished and all those who had interests in the land were included on the title deed from the 1870s, it still meant that each person had an individual share which could be bought or sold or traded. And again, that flew in the face of, of, of Māori law as well. But it was very effective because if an individual um, incurred debts or needed money, um, there was often um, a land buyer who was only too happy to take their interest off them. Buy up enough of these interests and the block is unviable. So the other owners think, well, we might as well sell it. Moreover, um, the requirement to put your land through the court was expensive. Anybody could claim or demand that a certain block put through the court, whether they had a right or not. So you got vexatious litigation, which the owners nevertheless had to defend. Um, lawyers were expensive. Surveyors were expensive. Hanging around town for a couple of months was expensive. So even the process of defending um, a community's land in the land court um, could be a huge drain. And often without much cash, the only way those costs could be met was, you guessed it, sell some of the land which you've just defended in the court. So it really was a, 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 a mechanism which was set up to acquire Māori land um, and it was very effective in that. It was also the venue for disputes between tribal groups about whose rights prevailed and um, so a lot of debate took place on those themes. By 1910, the vast majority of the North Island had been acquired, much of it through the court processes. Many Māori communities um, loathed the court, regarded it with the greatest of suspicion, and even in the decades through to 1910, you have Māori um, committees, tribal communities, and in um, the Māori Parliament, which attempted to establish a degree of self-management, basically saying, look, do away with the land court. Let us establish our own committees to manage our own lands. And the settler state would never allow that to happen. Uh, you have the usual ideologies of white superiority, cultural legal superiority, and indigenous inferiority. As a generalisation, from about 1910 until the 1980s, the Māori Land Court was a vehicle for administering what little land Māori had left, and in particular for deciding on inheritance, uh, confirming succession, who, who's entitled to inherit the rights of a deceased person. In the 1980s, it became more concerned under new legislation with assisting Māori to develop what land they had left, and in particular with facilitating um, collective forms of ownership, corporations, companies, and the like. So it's a little bit different now than it, than it was. Um, and certainly now it is, and, and it has been since the 1980s, the case that judges of the Māori Land Court are almost invariably Māori themselves uh, and are expected to be fluent in the language and well-versed in 
custom motikanga. That was not the case until the first Māori land, first Māori judge of the Māori land court was appointed in 1975. So for a hundred years, there were often monolingual Pākehā um, with certain assumptions um, and a huge range of perspectives, some very sympathetic as best they could be, others not, judge, sitting in judgment on, on, on um, Māori land matters. So that's a very short account of, of a very complex history of the court, but I, I think it's fair to say that its position has shifted significantly in the last uh, 40 odd years. And particularly, I think, as um, the judges of the court have become key figures in the Waitangi Tribunal, which was established in 1975 to hear grievances by Māori against the Crown that um, allegedly broke the terms of the Treaty of Tetiriti. Um, initially, the tribunal could only deal with current matters, but in 1985, it was given the power to go back to 1840. Um, and that, of course, opened a huge can of worms, as you can imagine, um, huge historical issues, um, which have really, I think, had a, had a very significant influence uh, in developing the law relating to Māori land and resource management. Um, all of this, it must be said, and you, know, you won't be surprised by this, driven by a huge amount of work, effort, activism and campaigning by Māori themselves. Well, I think that's that. Andrew, do you have any other questions? No, that was way more in depth than I expected. <laughs> well, um, well, uh, you know, never ask a historian for a quick answer, right? <laughs> that's always true. Well, we would like to thank you for coming on and enlightening us about this uh, wonderful topic that uh, has been in New Zealand history. And we would like to um, hopefully make it so that we can have you f on future episodes. And Please do. Please do. Um, a, a topic um, which, you know, must be said is still very visibly the source of a great deal of pain and hurt to many, many Māori, even as there has been some compensation in some places and some redress and some rebuilding of, of, of um, tribal economies. Um, you know, you cannot wipe out what has been done, as I'm, I'm sure you, you and um, most who listen to this will, will understand. But thank you for, for um, the opportunity to discuss this. Um, and um, I guess it's uh, evening for you, isn't it? Oh, yeah. But I wish you a good evening then. All right. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Katakar. Make sure to check out some of our other episodes on our website at katakar.media. You can also listen to them on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more podcast services. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to join us next time.